Hi, good morning. My name is Laura King, and I'm here with Art Smith, the founder of the Gay Bar Archives Project. Today is March 13th, 2023, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, his project as well as what it was like um, living in Atlanta during kind of like the height of what we'll refer to um, in this interview as the gay scene and queer spaces in Atlanta, um, based on past conversations we have. Um, uh, Art, if you could please introduce yourself um, to us all and kind of talk a little bit about why you came to Atlanta and why you started the Gay Bar Archives Project. Okay, so I'm Art Smith, and I'm the founder of the Gay Bar Archives Project, which endeavors to um, document as many gay bars from our history as possible. Um, the project started just before the onset of COVID at the end of 2019, and to date, I've documented over 3,000 bars and conducted over 120 uh, video interviews with bar owners, celebrities, entertainers, bar staff, patrons, talking about the gay bars that they remember. Um, now, to answer your question about why Atlanta, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee at the time in 1982. And my boyfriend and I decided that we were going to take an adventure and go to Atlanta for New Year's Eve, 82, 83. Okay. So we, moved, we went there for a long weekend and immediately experienced Atlanta's vibrant gay life, uh, nightlife. So that weekend, one of the, the main places that we went to was Backstreet which was a huge three-story uh, nightclub disco. And they had an amazing New Year's celebration that year. Uh, before we, we set out to go back to Nashville on Monday, my boyfriend and I decided we were going to move to Atlanta. We rented an apartment. We uh, turned on the utilities. I went to a job interview and was hired. And the following weekend, we moved to Atlanta to be in the midst of that vibrant scene. So what, in, when you're thinking about the Atlanta scene in comparison to Nashville, um, was it just more significant? Was it more welcoming? Why, was, why Atlanta over Nashville? So in my opinion, um, Atlanta was much more open at the time. And keep in mind, we're talking about the early 80s here. So mm -hmm. at this time, there are a lot of places that were not very gay or that the gay bars were kind of clandestine and they were almost underground operations. You, you had to know somebody to find them. Um, they were not on main streets. Well, you know, big signs and, and um, you know, large public presence. But in Atlanta, particularly at that time, in two areas, in Midtown and in the Cheshire Bridge uh, Road Corridor, there were dozens of gay bars uh, many of which you could walk between. So you could go from, for instance, uh, Backstreet to Bulldogs to the Armory um, and to a number of other bars along that strip, either on Peachtree or Piedmont. Uh, it was a very open area. You just felt very relaxed and comfortable. People did not look at you uh, cross-eyed if there were three or four guys going to dinner together at a restaurant or a couple of guys walking, you know, shopping at the mall together. It just seemed to be a lot more welcoming and, and um, accepting than cities like Nashville. Hmm. So I know you've mentioned um, a couple 
of the bars that really influenced you or had made a major impression on you during that time? Do you know of any of those that are still there or in some capacity, even if the name has changed? Um, there are not that many bars in Atlanta that still exist uh, from back in the 80s. There are a few. Uh, Bulldogs is still operating in its same location right there on Peachtree Street, a couple doors down from where Backstreet was located. Mm -hmm. um, in Ansley Mall, there's um, a small bar there that has been there for quite a while. It's gone through numerous name changes. It was called uh, the New Order at one time. It was called um, El Matador. Um, and it still operates today in that same space. It's still a, a gay bar. So there's a few, um, a few years after I moved there, there were a couple of bars that opened up. Um, Blake's was one of them. It was originally on Peachtree Street across from, um, uh, across from the Margaret Mitchell House diagonally. It was near near that location. Uh, they've since moved down to Piedmont Park, but they're still there. They're still in operation under the same name. And um, Burkhardt's opened in uh, Ensley Square, and it is now operating under the name of the Atlanta Eagle. Uh, the Atlanta Eagle was also opened down on Ponce de Leon in the, uh, in the 80s, and they recently relocated. So there's a few bars that are still around in some form or other, but for the most part, the 30 or 40 bars that were there in the 80s are pretty much all gone. Okay. So thinking about this 1970s to 1980s period, in your opinion, why were these gay bars and clubs so important? Um, there were a lot of reasons. Um, <clears throat> one of them is that they served as community organization centers. Mm -hmm. So they were the place where you could meet and find other like-minded people to um, form organizations like um, HRC or Equality or any of the organizations, GLAD, that uh, support gay causes and, and help us have you know, the rights that we have today. Um, there were no other places really to meet. You couldn't just show up at Applebee's with 20 people and have a meeting. That wouldn't have been very well accepted. <laughs> um, another reason was safety. It wasn't always safe to go to a, um, a place that was not openly gay or LGBTQ accepting. So uh, you went there so that you would be, you know, feel safe and not be gay bashed or mugged on the way out or whatever. Um, and the third reason is because they also were the center of fundraising for the gay community. So all these organizations that we've mentioned before, like HRC and GLAD and uh, the National Gay Task Force, they all kind of got their, their kickstart through the gay bars and the drag queens doing uh, fundraisers for them so that they would have money to operate. So speaking of drag, I've seen um, going through publications of that time that drag shows seem to be a major event that both was used for fundraising um, as, as well as um, kind of a draw to bring the community in. Um, 
in thinking about legislation today, uh, why do you, thinking about the past and now, what do you think about those legislations uh, attacking drag shows and drag artists? Well, I think it's a little bit unfortunate uh, because the whole concept of drag to begin with obviously goes way back. We know um, from our English literature that Shakespeare, um, the female roles were typically played by men dressed as women. Um, we know that there have been numerous mainstream movies that have come out over the years, um, including Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, which were widely accepted by the mainstream community that utilized dra uh, drag characters in them. Mm -hmm. And um, so we know it's it's been around for a long time. Prior to the 80s, in a lot of places, drag was still illegal, technically. Drag queens had to go by male names. They couldn't pretend to be a woman. They couldn't say, hi, I'm, you know, Miss Anita Chocolate. You had to have Mr. in front of your name or something like that, um, or use a male name. So you had drag queens like Billy Boots and Charlie Brown who used names that were kind of ambiguous or male-oriented. Um, so we had made great strides from the 80s into the 2000s. It's kind of unfortunate now that we're seeing so many of these states, particularly red states, that are trying to outlaw drag. And in my opinion, that's going to be a very difficult line to toe because what exactly is drag? I mean, how do you define drag? If you go back to the 40s, a woman wearing a T-shirt and blue jeans would have been considered to be in drag mm -hmm. because at that time, women were typically seen wearing dresses and skirts and hose and things of that nature. Um, we've kind of blurred those lines now. It's kind of right. difficult to identify what exactly is drag. So I think what's going to ultimately happen is that you're going to start seeing some lawsuits from more liberal areas, either within the same states, because many of the red states have, you know, blue pockets in them. I know in Florida, for example, uh, Tampa, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale are all more liberal than the state at large. And I think we're going to start seeing some um, legislation fighting those laws. And I think it's also going to be difficult to determine exactly what is drag to be able to enforce it in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good point that I haven't thought about. Um, kind of well, one of another thing, too, that people don't realize is the constructs that we use to identify male and female identity now uh, have changed dramatically. So if you go back into like the 18th century, you have, you know, the color pink was a male color. It was considered too flamboyant for women or girls to wear a bright pink outfit. So they usually wore subdued colors like grays and beige and light blues. Um, in the aristocracy back in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, uh, hose and heels and even skirts of some sort were male apparel. If you look at royalty back from, say, the 18th century, you'll see a lot of those people, uh, a lot of the guys wearing, wearing heels and, and some sort of a what we would now call a skirt or a dress. So what other types of major events were there um, in Atlanta during this time that were safe queer spaces or places where 
um, like annual events that the community looked forward to? Well, in the in the seventies, uh, probably the most notable event that happened in Atlanta that was not common around the country and certainly not in the Southeast at all was uh, Pride. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, 1969, we had the Stonewall Uprising. And in years after that, around the country, different cities had people organizing to kind of show support for the Stonewall, Stonewall Uprising and to um, fight for you know, gay acceptance and gay rights in their cities. And Atlanta was probably the first city in the Southeast to have a pride celebration, which I believe the first um, Atlanta pride was in 1971. So we we're only talking about two years after Stonewall. And it was pretty, you know, pretty consistently operated from 1971 all the way through to the present day. They've had more than 50 years of, of gay pride in Atlanta. How do you think it's changed uh, for the better or worse in the, during the, since it started? Well, in the last number of years, I'm gonna say the last maybe 10 years, um, pride organizations around the country have seen a huge change over what they used to be. Back in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s, pride was pretty much a grassroots type operation. It was supported by the local gar, uh, gay bars, the local gay owned businesses, and things of that nature. Um, as we've moved into the 2000s and the 21st century, we've seen a lot more corporate sponsorship. So you've seen uh, organizations like Coca-Cola and uh, Stoli Vodka and Mini and all these companies coming in and presenting uh, at Pride. Atlanta has had Nike uh, at their Pride numerous times. So you've seen a broader uh, acceptance from the commercial community as well as you know the local organizations, which of course still want to on some level be involved with Pride. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest change is that there's been a lot more uh, recognition from the mainstream economic community. Mm -hmm. So you see corporate sponsorship as a positive? Well, not necessarily. <laughs> um, yes, it's a good thing that they're accepting pride and it's a good thing that they're helping support it with their funding which they certainly have bigger budgets than you know say in atlanta a small store like brushstrokes which has been around since 1989 they don't have the budget that nike and coca-cola have for those kind of events so it's a good thing that they're bringing money into it it's unfortunate though that in some on some level they're also um overpowering the impact of the local vendors. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing a lot of local vendors that either can't afford to be at pride celebrations or that choose not to be because they don't feel like they can be as big a part as they were 20 years ago. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, that makes sense. So were there dangers, especially in the early years with holding and attending these pride festivals? Um, certainly, it was a different environment than it is today. Um, Atlanta's Pride, uh, once it got, you know, as I would say, grown up, once it became a full-fledged, you know, thousands of people going to Atlanta Pride and marching, you know, pretty much the length of Peachtree Street up to up to Piedmont Park, um, they started to get some flack. And uh, one of the places that the parade route passed, and even in its earlier years, 
was uh, right past the First Baptist Church, which is on Peachtree Street. And the people at uh, First Baptist Church were very vocal about their lack of support for uh, gay pride. And they would harass the marchers. They would hold picket signs and, and chant uh, anti-gay slurs and things of that nature. But on the flip side, just across the street, uh, St. Mark's would put out um, tables full of like little cups of lemonade and cookies and they were very supportive. So you got kind of both sides of, um, of the picture, but for the average person, the biggest concern I think at that time was that they might be seen on television because the news crews started coming out in the mid seventies recording uh, gay pride events because it was a big thing. It was, you know, thousands of people marching on Peachtree Street, which was closed for a couple of hours. So if you were in a position where you were not out at work or out to your family, you were concerned that your grandmother or somebody might be watching the news and see you in a skimpy pair of shorts and a you know gay t-shirt marching down the street and go, oh my God, he's gay. And you disowned or lost your job or whatever. So it wasn't so much, I think, a physical harm thing at that time. I think it was more of, you know, whether or not you were out yet and, and whether you were ready to be confronted by family and coworkers. So could you describe what it would have been like, especially in the 80s, like you go to Pride, you get there. What does it look like? What do you see? What do you hear? What did it feel like to you as someone, as part of that community, to be in that queer space? It was kind of energizing, actually. Um, you know, at that time in Atlanta, Pride was held in the traditional Pride month of June. So the weather in Atlanta in June um, is very warm. I mean, it was definitely going to be in the you know upper 80s, lower 90s. It was going to be humid. Uh, it was going to generally be very sunny. So you would be out there wearing a short, you know, shorts and a tank top or, you know, some people would be there shirtless. Um, and there was a lot of energy. Everybody was excited because it was one of the first times in a public space that you could feel like you had comrades in arms. You had friends who were as excited about proclaiming your gayness to the world um, as you wanted to do. You felt that you were able to go out in public and proclaim that you were, you know, special in some way. You were gay and you were proud of being gay. So there was a lot of, of a feeling of community out there. Uh, people were always friendly to each other. You know, you would walk down the street if you're marching alongside the parade or watching it from the sidewalk. And people would talk to each other and embrace each other and, you know, share comments about outfits and, and floats. And it was, like I said, very grassroots, but it was also very energizing as a community to see that there were thousands of people uh, like you in one place at one time in public. And I imagine in the evenings it's spilling over into those bars and clubs. So it was a long day of just celebrating self-identity. Absolutely, as it still is. Uh, Tampa Pride, or I'm sorry, Atlanta Pride, um, basically now is a three-day function. 
there are Friday night events, uh, kickoff parties and the party at the uh, aquarium and all kinds of things going on Friday. On Saturday, you have the um, smaller parades, uh, like the, I think there's a trans parade and drag parade and whatever uh, on Saturday, along with the, the vendor market down at Piedmont Park. And then on Sunday, you have the main parade and of course, all the vendors uh, out at the parade and the stage with all the local performers and sometimes national uh, performers. Mm -hmm. So it's a big, it's a whole weekend long event that is very exhausting. Mm -hmm. So turning it back to you a little bit. So when did you first get the idea that a project like Gate Archives was needed? Well, you know, my interest in, in recording and sharing information about the gay community has uh, been around for a long time. In the 80s, I published a, a local magazine. Actually, I worked with several magazines there uh, in Atlanta. And even at that time, I wanted to feature stories about gay businesses and gay bars and you know, do features about the bartenders and the people that worked in the bars so that you kind of felt like you knew more about the community other than just walking in and getting a drink and you know hanging out with your friends. But the Gabe Archives project itself really took off, as I said, and the end of 2019 is when it started. And I was having a conversation with uh, one of the owners of probably the preeminent bar in Atlanta that everybody who was there between, I don't know, 1975 and 2005 uh, knows about. It was called Backstreet. And um, it was the Mac Daddy bar of Atlanta. It was the Studio 54 of Atlanta. It was the place. It had a massive dance floor. Um, it had a massive show bar on the top floor in its later years. It was open for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, starting, um, I believe, in the, in the 80s. Um, so it was the bar. And I was having a conversation with one of the owners of that bar, who is uh, Vicki Vera. She still lives in the Atlanta area. And we were talking about the fact that 2020 was the 45th anniversary of the opening of the bar. Now they had closed uh, years earlier, but that was the 45th anniversary of when they opened. And she wanted to do something to commemorate that, um, that event. So we created a t-shirt and made it a fundraiser for the um, Atlanta Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. It sold very well, hundreds of, of uh, t-shirts that were sold and they raised a lot of money from it. But in the course of that conversation and reminiscing with other people from Atlanta about Backstreet, it kind of mushroomed into other bars from Atlanta as well. So people would say, well, yeah, I love Backstreet and you know we had this experience there and that experience there, but before then, we would go to the armory for drinks, or we'd go to Bulldogs for drinks, or, you know, maybe afterwards, you would go to the Cove. So you would mention, you know, they mentioned all these bars, and it just started exponentially to grow. Um, by March, about four or five months after I started that conversation with Vicki, um, I had probably documented about 100 or so bars in Atlanta, and the project kept growing. And now, as I said, we've documented over 3,000 gay bars from around the country, a few across the world. Um, and 
it's it keeps going every day i find somebody mentioning a bar that i didn't know about or mentioning something about a bar uh that was news to me so it's still growing strong so how did you get the word out and start finding this audience so there's a, a couple of ways i kind of piggybacked a little bit in the beginning on a couple of groups uh, on Facebook, which are both pretty active. Um, there's one called I Partied at Backstreet, and that has almost 11,000 active members, even though the bar's been closed for 15 years. Um, and another one is called I Partied at the Armory, and I think they have around 5,000 members. So both of those groups I would post things about. And then I created my own Facebook group, um, and it's called Gabe Archives. That Facebook group now has about 5,600 active members who post things, um, you know, photographs of themselves at the bars, uh, pictures of old ads, photographs of the bars that they took, you know, back in the 80s when they first moved to whatever city, um, and comment about them and share them with everybody else. And so it, it now, through the Gabe Archives group, I get a lot of additional information. And of course, as I would go move along and I would hear names of different people, I would connect with those people. So I'm connected with, you know, probably 50 or 60 uh, gay bar owners on Facebook and uh, through other social media. And as I start talking to them, of course, they mentioned, well, you know, my general manager was, you know, John Doe and my uh, show director was this person. And we all keep connecting and, and it just grows exponentially. Mm -hmm. What do you think having a project like this has meant for the community that experienced it? Well, for the people that were there, the people that went to the bars in the 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, um, I get a lot of feedback from them directly, either when I interview them, because I've done over 120 interviews with people about their gay bar memories, um, so when I interview them, I get some feedback and also on the posts on my, in my Facebook group, uh, a lot of people will comment and the general feeling is thank you so much for reminding us. Um, I had almost forgotten about that bar. What fond memories. That's where I met my first boyfriend. Um, you know, that's why I moved to Baltimore or whatever. And we, I get a lot of positive feedback. I, I haven't really had anybody suggests that there was you know any negative aspect everybody seems to feel warm and fuzzy about reminiscing about them so are there any goals that you specifically have for the project moving forward um, or is it just continuing the work that you've done well i definitely want to continue what we're doing and make it you know bigger and better and stronger but um one thing i really like to do is be able to get more outreach and connect with um more people in more places. So for instance, a couple of months ago, I started writing an occasional article for a digital magazine, an online gay publication called Happening. And in each article, I feature the story of one gay bar. Um, so I write a one page article with photographs about a bar from the past. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be in Atlanta, it could be in Los Angeles, it could be in Chicago, it, could be in France, it doesn't really matter, um, just to spread the word about, you know, the gay bar history. Um, and of course, through my YouTube channel, I've reached thousands of people um, 
who watch the video interviews and learn about their gay past, I'd really like to be able to collect as much information as, about as many bars as possible and ultimately uh, publish it in, a, I'm assuming, a series of books because you can't talk about 3,000 bars in one book. Um, so I'd definitely like to have a book or, or 10 um, talking about gay history and having the information out there where it's publicly accessible. I, I try to put as much as I can on my website so people don't have to hunt and look everywhere and you know, I try to consolidate it as much as possible. So as the Invisible Histories Project, as they continue working on establishing and creating this exhibit on Georgia's queer history, from your perspective and your work, what is something that you think is crucial to be part of that exhibit? Well, you know, of course, if you're, if you're talking about uh, uh, an exhibit, is this an exhibit that's going to be in a physical space or are you talking about an online exhibit? Um, it's going to be set up in Atlanta. Okay. So, you know, one thing that, that I seem to get a lot of reaction from is um, photographs. So if you can accumulate through various sources, through the, you know, the Facebook groups that I mentioned, um, and through individuals that you may be connected with, photographs um, that you can put in the slideshow or in the presentation, those always elicit a response because when you see a picture of your favorite bar and possibly a favorite entertainer uh, in that bar, it brings back you know, memories. Um, the initial part of my project, I was focusing on digitally reconstructing the logos of those bars. And so far I've done a couple hundred from Atlanta. Um, they're hard to find sometimes, but when people see the logo, it's the same idea as seeing a picture. It brings back a memory because that it was the graphic image that represented that particular space. Um, so I would incorporate those if you have them. Um, and it, you're certainly welcome to use any of the ones that I have. Um, I'll mm -hmm. be happy to send them to you or make them available. Um, but, and, I, and another thing is if you can do um, you know, even if it's only a handful of people that you can have do a 10 or 15 or 20 second uh, blurb about their favorite bars. And there are so many of them in Atlanta. I mean, there's in, in my list of Atlanta bars from the past, there's probably 300. So there are so many bars that Atlanta has had uh, over the years. And many of those people um, are still around. Charlie Brown, for example, has been for performing in drag uh, for 50 plus years, and she's still in Atlanta. He's still in Atlanta. It's Mr. Charlie Brown, which is harkens back to the days of not being able to use, um, you know, a female identity. But Mr. Charlie Brown has been performing has been performing in Atlanta for close to 50 years, and for a few years before that in Nashville. So. Um, He's got stories to tell going way back to the 70s in Atlanta. Uh, Mark Jones is still there, who was the uh, choreographer for a number of the show bars, including Sweet Gumhead and Illusions in Atlanta. Um, Mitch Grooms runs the uh, I Partied at Backstreet and I Partied at Armory groups, and he worked at the Armory for quite a while. He's got many stories to tell. Um, Jody Hanvey has a YouTube channel 
uh, called Jody's Midtown Madness that has video clips of interviews and competitions and drag shows and uh, all kinds of things from back in the 80s, 90s, 2000s in Atlanta. Um, so there are many people back there, you know, back in Atlanta that still have memories of all these places and would, would definitely be able to contribute to your project. So if we were to blurb you, what would you say? I would say that, you know, looking back at the at the 70s and 80s, Atlanta was truly a gay mecca. It was the San Francisco of the Southeast. And it was, it's hard to put it into words. It was the, the most welcoming and supportive community that I can think of, largely because of the gay bar scene that was so active back then. And I am really glad that I was able to move there in the early 80s and to live there for the better part of 20 years and experience that community because it was an amazing place to be at that time in you know the gay world. That's a good answer. I put you on the spot there. You did. <laughs> so I know now you live in Florida, um, but do you ever make it back to Atlanta? And what do you see still by way of a gay community or space that either exist or doesn't exist there? Well, it's a little different now than it was. Well, I shouldn't say a little. It's a lot different now than it used to be. Um, back where, when I first moved there, like I said, the main focus of the gay community was either in Midtown, um, in the vicinity of uh, Peachtree Street and 6th, um, probably yeah, 6th to 10th, somewhere around there. Um, and then a little bit on Cheshire Bridge Road, on the upper end of Cheshire Bridge Road near La Vista. Um, now that scene has moved, and it seems like Ansley is the focal point of the gay community now. Uh, there are, I think, four or five gay bars in Ansley Square, and still one um, in Ansley Mall. And of course, a lot of the businesses that surround those bars are very gay friendly. What I found most comforting about the scene in Atlanta today is that a lot of the people, uh, you know, the main players that were there 20, 30, 40 years ago are still around. So Richard Ramey just opened the new Atlanta Eagle uh, in the old Burkhardt's location. He's been a familiar face in the scene for a long time. As I mentioned, Mr. Charlie Brown uh, is still performing, and he performs at the Eagle as well as some other places. I think he does a drag brunch now at Lips, too. Um, and he's still around, and that is comforting. When you see people from your community that you recognize from 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they're still kicking, and they're still out there, you know, active in the community. Um, across the street from the, across the plaza from the Atlanta Eagle is Brushstrokes. Brushstrokes has been the gay variety store in Atlanta from 1989. So they have been around for a long time and they have always supported the drag queens and gay causes, fundraisers, anything they can do to make the gay community a better place. And they have been around since 1989. So to walk in there and see Mark Jackson still there behind the counter is amazing. Uh, to see people like Greg Doherty uh, and Marcy Alt, who have been involved in the gay community for decades, still active, 
that is a heartwarming experience to know that, you know, it's not a total change of people in the community. There's still a lot of people who have been active and, and effective in the community for decades. So before we close out, I want to give you the opportunity. Do you have any other one or two stories that really stand out to you as important for understanding the, this gay scene or even just important to you personally? Well, one story um, is about a gay bar and it was located on Cheshire Bridge Road. Uh, there's a woman that many people from Atlanta have known for a long time. Um, she owned half a dozen gay bars over the years and her name is Dina Collins. Um, Dina owned a lesbian bar on Cheshire Bridge uh, called The Rose and then decided to open up a kind of mixed country western bar um, that was called Dina's One Mo Time. And it was a country theme bar. They did a lot of line dancing lessons and all kinds of things, but she accepted everybody there. And she was always a big supporter uh, in the 80s and 90s, especially of uh, fundraisers related to HIV and AIDS. And when she first opened her, uh, her bar, uh, Dina's One Mo Time, she would be there until closing. So like three o'clock in the morning, then you clean up and do your paperwork and make your deposit. Next thing you know, it's four o'clock in the morning. She would often spend the night in the back room of the bar so that she could be there at seven or eight o'clock in the morning when some of her patrons would come in, uh, come up to the bar who had HIV or AIDS and were in need of something. You know, maybe they needed breakfast or maybe they needed to take a shower. And she would, she had a shower in the bar um, in the back. She would allow them to take a shower and maybe sleep on the sofa for a little while or get something to eat. Um, but she would give up her personal life by staying in the bar for those few hours so that she would be there and awake in the morning when they needed her. And um, her bar's tagline at that time was a bar with a sense of community. So that kind of exemplifies what the bars were like back then. They were not just a place where you walked into a random facility, ordered a drink, uh, you know, maybe got drunk, picked somebody up, went home, whatever you did. They were a place where you actually built a community and you knew the owners of the bar and you knew the bartenders and you were like a family. And so to me, that it kind of exemplifies what the scene was like back in the 80s and 90s. And you know, even before then in Atlanta. Yeah, I know her name has come up quite a bit um, in the research that I've been doing. So I'm glad you mentioned that because the impression I was getting was that she, her, her personally and her bars were crucial to the community. Um, yeah, I think she, she had a huge impact and she's still there in Atlanta. I talked to her when I was there back in um, last October for Atlanta Pride. Um, I've talked to her on the phone several times and she was, she was, um, you know, still there and we were still talking about uh, the gay bar. She's, I think like 86 years old now, um, but she's, she's still got a sharp mind and a sharp tongue. She's never been one to mince her, her words. So um, yeah, she was, she was definitely a big part of the community there. Um, and like I said, you know, Mark at Brushstrokes was the same way. Backstreet did tons of, of fundraisers. Um, the bars were all like that. Eagle 
um, the leather community a lot of times gets kind of um, backhanded compliments or people want to tear them down for being, you know, ex excluding people or being too, um, you know, macho, whatever. But the Eagle and the leather community in general around the around the country um, has also played a huge role in supporting a lot of gay organizations over the years. And if there's any bar that still um, exemplifies that concept of community, I would have to you know, say that the Eagle um, is probably it because I, I was there for their grand opening during Atlanta Pride last year. And it was amazing, you know, the warmth and camaraderie and for lack of a better word, brotherhood, um, sisterhood, whatever. Um, the sense of community there was, was very strong also. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you, and you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but you lived in Tennessee, Georgia, Florida. What makes Georgia's LGBT history stand out to you? Well, probably uh, because at the time that I lived in Atlanta, which again was like the early 80s to the very end of the 90s, uh, I did come back for a couple of years around 2013, but for that time period in the 80s and 90s, um, it was a very vibrant, welcoming community that was very active. There was a lot of stuff going on. There was, um, you know, you may have heard of the Hotlanta River Expo, which was a big event that happened every year in August on the Chattahoochee River with thousands and thousands of people coming from around the Southeast and across the country to go raft racing uh, down the Chattahoochee River. Um, you had Joining Hearts and all these different organizations that had big events. You felt special. You didn't feel like you were going to a rundown basement bar uh, to buy a raffle ticket for you know a $25 prize. You were going to something that was comparable you know, to a red carpet event. You had celebrities coming in and performing, um, you know, at your bars. You have people like uh, Two Tons of Fun, AKA the Weather Girls. Um, you had Sylvester, you had Jimmy James, you had all these performers coming to bars and doing performances for you, which made you feel like you were special. And what you weren't seeing, you know, just local talent or, you know, you were seeing people who were on the top of their career at that time. Alicia Bridges, uh, who I believe lived in Atlanta for a long time and may still be there. Um, so it was a very, a very powerful community. And again, because it was at that time, that was something you did not find in many other places. So it was, it was my welcome to the gay world. Um, and I think whenever you have, you know, just like your, um, your first love, when you have your first, um, that always stands out kind of special in your heart. And I think Atlanta really made a big impact uh, on me in that way. And it will always have that, you know, that special place in my mm -hmm. heart. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this uh, quick interview with me today. Um, it's really amazing to hear you mention all these places that I've been reading about and kind of putting some color to just reading the text in these newspapers and it's given me a lot also to go back and look for and try to unravel some of these stories some more so thank you so much and I know this work and your work is going to be really helpful 
um, in creating this exhibit for Georgia's history that we're working on. Well, I certainly hope I can be of help. And um, I might mention to you, if you go to my website, there's a page on the website. It's atlanta.gaybarchives.com. And on that page, I list every interview I have done that is relevant to Atlanta. And there are people in there that, you know, names that you'll see, you'll be able to listen to their stories firsthand from my interviews. Um, and on each of those uh, listings for those videos, there are also links to their social media or their websites or whatever. So you can get in touch with a lot of them. But a couple of the ones I might mention that are probably going to be you know, interesting for you is um, there's one there with Larry T. Larry T was an associate friend, comrade of RuPaul back in the 80s when RuPaul was just getting started in Atlanta. And yes, RuPaul's career did pretty much start uh, in Midtown Atlanta back in the 80s. Um, but he's, I interviewed him and he talks about those days in Atlanta, as well as packing up everything into a minivan and driving from Atlanta to New York, where RuPaul got on a grander stage and became who RuPaul is today. Um, there's also an interview in there with uh, Ted Binkley, who was a bar owner in Atlanta. He was uh, one of the owners of Illusions the showplace of the South and also one of the owners of crazy rays, uh, which is in the, was in the Ansley square plaza where mix is now. Um, and he talks about his gay bar experiences going all the way back into the fifties. So, you know, you might want to look at some of those interviews and connect with some of those people and see what they have to say. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Um, and I probably will definitely be back in touch with you um, as I continue this research. But thank you again. Oh, excellent. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Laura. You're welcome.